AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hi, my name is Ganesh Kasina. I work as a security analyst with the CSO. I look at the internet data and looking at the botnet, you know, all interesting stuff. Todd Wiskalis from our security consulting group was at the Gartner conference recently and he led a panel discussion about cyber insurance. Todd, you actually recently attended the Gartner Security and Risk Management Summit and uh, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a readout of some of the highlights that, uh, from that conference and maybe what you observed there and we could have a little discussion afterwards. Sure, I'd love to and uh, good afternoon. Yeah, so last week I was down at the uh, Risk Management Summit Gartner in, in National Harbor. Uh, it was a very well-attended um, summit. There was a lot of good uh, participants there, a lot of good clients. We had a lot of good sessions from both Gartner as well as some of the other vendors. We actually hosted a panel discussion with uh, participants from AIG and Marsh on navigating the cyber insurance and risk management waters. And, and cyber insurance is a, a really hot topic nowadays, right? I mean, I think that they're looking for the market to hit close to 14 billion in the next five years, which is almost a 28% CAGR. So we did a quick poll in the room to see how many folks had insurance. I can tell you that over half of the room already had insurance. And those that didn't have insurance were saying, uh, said that they were in the market, they were shopping for cyber insurance. I'm surprised to hear the high number of organizations have already have. I think the number is around 50% or something like that. I thought the number would be much lower, you know, like a single digits or something. Can you explain a little bit about how was your experience with respect to cyber insurance at the conference, in general terms? There are a lot of misconceptions about cyber insurance. A lot of companies feel that they're covered for cyber events under their GA policy, and the feedback from the, uh, the underwriter was that's just not the case, right? So I know we read the papers and we see uh, organizations file a cyber claim and they, they didn't get paid out, but more often than not, it's because they just didn't have cyber coverage. It, it, it affects organizations of all size and verticals. Um, and for some companies, it could be pretty damaging if you have a data breach, right, in terms of cost. We look, we look at the recent EU uh, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, it carries a fine of up to 4% of the total company revenue. For some companies, that could be pretty hefty. Is there any concern that once companies have this insurance that they'll do less to protect themselves? No, in fact, it's a great question. So in fact, one of the other panel participants was from Marsh, which is, an under, which is a broker form, right? So their position is um, we want organizations to do more so um, you know, they can protect themselves better. And so some of the feedback was around you know, really just basic infosec hygiene, the blocking and tackling, the the patch management, the access control, the network segmentation, data protection, all of those types of things. And the brokers really work closely with the, the entities looking for insurance to ensure that they're doing the right things because the more that, that the company is doing the right things to protect the data, the, the higher likelihood that they'll have lower premiums when they go to get that insurance coverage. So the insurance companies work with the clients to sort of help them protect themselves, basically, you know, it's in everybody's interest for this stuff not to happen. The insurance company doesn't want to pay, the company doesn't want to have a breach. Yeah, and it's less the underwriters and it's sort of more the brokers, right? So the underwriters are doing the, the education in the market and providing the coverage, and then the brokers are the ones that are really working closely with those end clients. And there was actually a comment from one of the insurance underwriters that says, 
we we have to pay out. We want to pay out. And if you think about it, it's it's how it has to work, right? If if insurance never got paid, then we would know what would happen to the insurance space. So, um, you know, but they also want companies to do the right things. And so the brokers work closely with those end clients, uh, ensuring they have the right controls in place and driving better data security. And, and the, one of the biggest feedbacks we heard was that programs that um, are sustainable uh, and measurable to some degree have the greatest likelihood of having a better impact on your premiums than, you know, if you're operating as an ad hoc fashion, which, you know, makes sense. So one of the questions, and I don't really know a whole lot about insurance in the security market, but in the human market, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that they've been pushing a lot for um, for humans, people to go get regular exams, and there's certain things you can do to get your a lower rate for your insurance through your uh, company or a healthcare provider. So I was kind of wondering, do they do kind of like a yearly kind of audit or checkup uh, in order to make sure that they're still kind of following best practices for security in order to keep their coverage? Yeah, in fact, so often the premiums may be a year or two years. So initially you fill out a questionnaire, you talk about what you do, you send it in, and depending on the risk of your business, they may send some folks down and look at, you know, what you're doing, dig a little bit deeper. But um, the feedback was that if we if they're coming back year over year and they're seeing marked improvements in your program and protecting data and doing the right things, then that will lower your premium. So, yeah, they check back in, uh, you know, at the end of the term, and then they go back and review the environment, see if there's been improvements, or, you know, honestly, see if there's been some things that have gone downhill, and they'll adjust the premiums that way. The, the most interesting thing, though, because you mentioned it, you talk about uh, in a healthcare or even in, in auto insurance is, um, you know, information about historical data so that they can base these premiums on things. And it's it's a real challenge right now in, in, in the cyber insurance space. And one of the things that was mentioned as, you know, needing to have the biggest impact was some sort of quantifiable risk scoring, some sort of something where they can quantifiably say across a broad set of individuals, hey, I see this risk here and that's applicable and, and you know, it, it balances out with all the other risks that we're seeing in the same vertical, the same segment, those types of things. You know, I hadn't really looked at this conference before, but there are a lot of different tracks, it looks like, to follow and there's a lot of interesting topics. So um, I'd recommend viewers take a look at it if they haven't been to it. Um, looks like it has a lot of different content and subject matter that gets covered uh, you know, at this uh, Gartner conference. So it's an interesting one. So, I mean, insurance is something you need to have, but it shouldn't replace your, um, your having good cybersecurity practices and hygiene. They're not a replacement one for the other. And uh, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, they dovetail together in terms of your entire cybersecurity strategy for your company. All right, so the next story we're looking at uh, this week is one that you were taking a look at, Joe, and uh, ransomware, we can't get away from it, right? Yeah, we're all over. <laughs> so yeah, this is a, a fileless ransomware um, called Sorbrecht. Uh, I picked up a little story. It's interesting, um, but basically it's ransomware that gets into the servicehost.exe file and then self-destructs, and you know that's sort of the the way they're you know categorizing it as fileless and then the other interesting part is it's it's targeting enterprise servers and network file shares so not you know end users trying to get you know one two bitcoins this is going after corporations industrial it's got some unique characteristics and that it's it's not as easily traceable uh, it, it uses the ps exec command uh, one of the ways to protect yourself from this uh, ransomware is to really lock down permissions to PS Exec. As far as attribution, um, the researchers uh, 
think this was initially targeted in the Middle East, but you know, with ransomware and everything we see out in the wild, it's kind of exploded from there, and now it's virtually worldwide. We see it in, here in the U.S., Canada, China. Right. Well, the fileless malware in, in and of itself, we've seen this technique quite a bit okay. um, in other forms of malware. I also noticed that they used the Tor network protocol uh, to anonymize its C2 communication, which is not unusual either. That's another tip and trick that a lot of other malware actors have been adopting over the past couple of years. They're kind of picking up tips and tricks that have been successful some, for some other actors. Not surprised that ransomware actors are adopting some of these practices that are successful elsewhere. This specific malware ransomware actually taking together, you know, the finer points from other successful malware campaigns and, you know, merging together into one specific threat. We've seen the fileless kind of uh, technique being used a lot in malware, uh, especially in other families, very successfully, I might add. But these are the types of indicators that, you know, security analysts and defenders would want to know so that they can kind of go look on their network to see if they're seeing evidence of this. Certainly, if you see evidence of Tor in your network, um, in a commercial enterprise, that's probably something you want to take a closer look at. Like, why is there any legitimate reason that this is happening? Right. Probably there isn't. Yeah, well, I think first off, you hit it right on the head. Why do you have Tor traffic on your network? That's probably not a good thing, right? So you, you understand your environment baseline it a little bit so you can, you know, you can protect yourself better before you, before you get hit. Typically with the ransomwares, you know, sometimes the backups are the, you know, the way to go to get back the data. Right. If in this case, if the NFS and other, you know, crown jewels are affected, what will be the, you know, the smart ways to defend against this kind of ransomware? Well, I think you can still back up your file shares. Yeah, having know. a good backup strategy yeah. for your yeah. entire network is really important, even down to the desktop environment. Uh, user awareness and training to ensure your folks aren't clicking on links they shouldn't be, and then Let's look at our firewall rules, right? Let's make sure that we're restricting inbound and outbound traffic that's business appropriate. Yeah, and plus in this case, you do have to have permission to get to the PS exec command to actually... Well, that's actually a third party. Well, I shouldn't say third party. It's a tool from Microsoft System Internals. So it's not right. part of Windows, but they must be dropping it down onto the machine. So the presence of it, I mean, it's. I wouldn't say it's unusual, because right. I guarantee I have it on my PC but it, you don't get it by default when you install Windows. Right, but if you restrict that permission to a really core group, maybe, you know, the, the, the few admin group, then you really, you know, it makes it a little harder yeah. for that targeted, you know, penetration of your system, so. You know, we're certainly seeing a lot of ransomware out there, usually smaller organizations, onesies, twosies types of things. Um, obviously coaching a lot of companies on proper backup procedures, how to be prepared for ransomware, ensuring that they've got offlines, you know, all of those different types of, uh, of pieces. But it's tough. It's tough for a lot of these smaller, mid-sized companies that get hit by these things. It's ransomware, so it's sort of a standard set of protections. So definitely do backups, uh, educate your users, uh, restrict your permissions. You know, if, if we're making it harder to harvest uh, administrator credentials, that's, that's one protection against this kind of ransomware as well. All right, so we've got a story here about Mac ransomware, which is sort of ransomware as a service. You want to tell us about that, Ganesh? Yeah, yeah. thank you, Joe. To continue the theme of ransomware, yeah. a little bit pivot towards the Mac ransomware. I'm, I'm basically talking about the ransomware as a service. Right. Uh, in this case, uh, the uniqueness of this uh, service is basically, you know, the author, you know, the malware author, 
is targeting the Mac OSs, which is not common, basically, you know. Right, the Windows, Windows are, is the big platform for ransomware, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's not a lot of malware in general on Mac. It's not that it's not possible, it's just it's not as attractive as a footprint for attackers, because there's just not as much embedded base out there. So it's interesting to me uh, that, you know, somebody's targeting the Mac platform for ransomware. Uh, in this scenario, actually, the way this ransomware works is it's hosted on a web server on a Tor network, mm -hmm. which is not common with ransomware, but it's a little unique. You know, it's like an indicator. You know, if you see a presence of Tor, it may be you know you know checkpoint. You know, look at the you know what's the final details with that, mm -hmm. and also uh, the ransomware. Even though if a user goes and visits, and maybe a bad actor goes and visits it, the ransomware is not found there. The way it works is the user the user has to contact the malware author. You know, I want to get the mal ma ma ransomware from you. So let's talk about that. So this, that, I thought that was interesting. This is too, actually, yeah. you have to contact. So the, the, so the as the, a service is like small time <laughs> yeah. operation. So yeah. there's no access to It's like the, your general store back in the old days. You right. call this guy directly. And, and he crafts hey, the ransomware for you. It's crazy. Right. It is weird. I found it kind of surprising that human interaction was involved in order to obtain your own build of this ransomware. So that to me is a little interesting. It also kind of shows that there's probably not a very high maturity level on the part of this actor. Uh, in terms of like a, as a seasoned malware author. And yeah. these guys at Fortinet, they actually, they went through the whole process, right? I think they went through the process. They contact the author via ProtonMail, you know, which is, you know, secure email kind of right. thing. They actually interacted with the uh, publisher of the, of the ransomware. Then they tried to do some attribution as to, you know, what time zone they were in, pulled out some features in the ransomware to see, you know, potentially where and, and what what the author of this uh, ransomware looked like. They do reference that the time zone in the email is GMT minus four, like you said, right. which I thought was unusual because usually GMT minus four would be East Coast time currently. That's right. daylight savings time for us. So that's a little interesting. Right, um, they did key in on the delay though between, you know, they would send a, an email at 9 a.m. in the morning and then the response wouldn't come till like 1 a.m. the next day or midnight. So the, midnight there their is time or midnight, midnight the user's the, time? Yeah, the user's time. So there was like a, I don't know if it was seven to nine, seven or nine hour delay in responses, so. Some features with this uh, specific ransomware is that uh, obviously it's a, it's a stealth. It's not, re, it's not seen for the regular user once it's uh, installed and it's not seen unless it's activated. And the second thing is they have, you know, very high strength uh, uh, you know, 128-bit encryption. Okay. I think, you know, yeah. I think it's pretty much industry standard. It's, uh, it's uh, highly impossible to decrypt with the limited sources. Mm -hmm. uh, third one is the speed. The author claims it can actually encrypt the, you know, a specific Mac system within a minute. Wow. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the claim, you know, claimed by him. Depends on yeah. the size of your hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right and the number of files on it. Yeah, and also the deniability. I mean, once the malware is on the system, you know, there is no traces, you know, that's basically, I think, it gives you the deniability of the presence of the malware. I noticed that they had a section here about some, this is typical of most malware, to do some kind of anti-analysis technique. Yeah. Um, right. We see that all the time in Windows stuff, so, you know, obviously they're reusing some of those techniques in this Mac um, piece of ransomware here to look for 
whether they're in a real Mac environment, right? Yes. Well, yeah, they, they check. Yeah, they check about the hardware model based on you know some command, whether it's Mac or not. And the second check they do is any presence of the debuggers. Right. If any of those are met, it actually doesn't install and you know deploy the malware. Okay. One another an interesting aspect is actually the malware checks for the presence of two CPUs. Right. I'm not sure what it is for. But I thought you know it's a little bit interesting to you know. That is, have that I, I'm not sure what that's about either. To be honest with you, that's maybe somebody who knows Max better would would understand why they would look for that. And uh, eventually, I think uh, they're asking for I think a point two five bitcoins by sending to you know some Proton same email to get the decryption key and you right, know. protonmail.com some email yeah, there or something. something. Yeah, get Windows at protonmail.com. Okay. It's funny, we used to see two, three, five Bitcoin. Now Bitcoin's gone so high that it's fractions. Yeah, fractions of, of Bitcoin, you know. yeah. I don't even know what it is now, but it is, it's, Bitcoin is, one Bitcoin is a lot of money. Yeah. Yet another one to keep an eye on. I know you do a lot of our botnet tracking stuff, so I didn't see anything obvious in here in terms of like command and control indicators in this article, but if there were some, that would be one thing that we'd probably want to follow up on you sure. know, for us to see if we see um, any customers or anybody of that nature that might be compromised by this as well. But I have a feeling this might be a pretty small time operation right now, but definitely um, you know, Mac ransomware is not something we see every day, so it's one, another one to pay attention to. All the good practices still hold, like don't click on any unknown attachments, you know, have good backups, good internet hygiene. These things will definitely help for any user. Internet weather, the trend seems to be nowadays all related to IoT malware. All right, so let's take a look at the internet weather for this week, Ganesh. And uh, you used to be our primary weatherman back My in the- interesting part. Yeah, this is right, this is, uh, right in your wheelhouse. So um, we'll take a look at what we've been seeing lately. Uh, not a lot of change from what we normally see. So the mm -hmm. Telnet scanning, the SSH scanning, we know there's lots of IoT stuff doing that. Also, there's not a lot of change. See in the right-hand column there, we don't have a lot of change in their position. So it's pretty much been like this for a while. Okay. Uh, and I'm gonna go over to the most sources probing because this usually uh, reflects botnet-related activity because you got a lot of sources at once scanning in unison. So we see 81 TCP, which is unusual. Uh, 9,000 TCP, and we actually, there's one that's not on this chart here, but I'm going to show you why in a second that I thought was a little interesting. So this is kind of a busy one. I talked about this last month, the last time I did the internet weather, and there's a family of malware called Perserai that we talked about. And it's similar to Mirai, which right. has been talked about a lot, right? But this one uses domain names that are in Iran, uh, this ntpgtpnet.ir on a load.gtpnet.ir. So I think they kind of just contracted Persian and Mirai, and they got Perserai, and that's this family of malware that's targeting these DVR cameras, um, a particular uh, flavor of a web server that runs on these called the go-ahead web server, and uh, there's some remote code execution vulnerabilities that they're using to get those devices infected. And we do know that there was, um, you know, this activity back here was definitely attributed to Perserai, um, from scanning on port 81 TCP, which is the red uh, color on the chart here. There was a period of time where the domains got parked. We talked about this last time. Okay. Then the domains were reactivated to go to a new IP address. We saw the scanning start up again. It went away. And the last time I talked about it, 
they did a real brief scan of 82 TCP. And you can see it like lines up perfectly the way it flows together here. They almost merge maybe and then they shift it on a dime. Just for a day, they just scan for yeah, a day. Yeah, maybe a day, maybe not even almost a full day, which is strange. It could be a bug. Maybe they made a mistake. They typed 82 instead of 81. Mm -hmm. And then they realized, oh, gee, we didn't mean 82. We wanted 81. In any event, I thought it was a little interesting. Uh, but since then, we have seen kind of this continuous scanning on 81 TCP. Um, it's the same types of devices. These commands and command and controls are still pointing to the IP address that they had been pointing to since they switched over. Lots of, uh, well, actually, we know that this is related to a specific um, vulnerability in these IP cameras. They run a special um, uh, web server. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, we're going to move along to the next one, which was not on the chart, but I thought it was interesting because I, I pointed this out last time I presented internet weather back in middle May. Okay. And this is actually what it looked like back on May 16th, this scanning on 5358 TCP. Don't really know what this was all about, what they were looking for. I don't think we ever really concretely figured it out. Okay. But we do know um, that the sources of the scanning were lots of these DVRs, DVR embedded type. devices that we see, these little okay. IoT type devices we see all the time. But to what end, we weren't quite sure. I also did some more you know, analysis that we've done, and we don't even really see a lot of completed connections. Um, so it's interesting to see, actually, the sources actually peaked to almost 60,000. Yeah, that's a lot. That's right? a lot. That's a lot of sources. So, yeah. um, And then it has trailed off. Yeah. Now, the real interesting thing is we look at this today, because this was a month ago. We look at it today, and you'll see it stopped completely mm -hmm. right around May 31st, uh, so about two weeks or so ago for us. Um, so the scanning activity ceased almost entirely on this port all at the same time. So obviously a botnet, right? Because you don't, you got to like give a command to all these machines yeah. to tell them to stop scanning. Um, and I was kind of in my head as I was putting this together this morning, I was like, well, why would they stop scanning right at the end of the month? Is there any reason for that? That seems unusual. Mm. Um, and why stop scanning at all? So then, Very interesting. Uh, yeah, it is interesting, right? Yeah. I don't really have an answer, but I just thought I'd point it out. You know, I don't always know why the clouds form in the sky either. That's what the weather, you know. But uh, uh, just these are our observations about um, uh, what we've been seeing. So um, let's move on to 9,000 TCP, mm -hmm. which is in the chart uh, for this week or in our top 10. And when we look at this, it really started like almost around 531, 2017, yeah. which I thought, well, that's interesting because I haven't done the internet weather since, you know, a few weeks back and I hadn't seen this, but I was like, well, we had one stop and we had another start. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, when we looked at the types of devices, Matt actually went over this last week, I think on the show, mm -hmm. uh, which I wasn't on, but he noticed same kind of devices again, DVRs, right? IOT type things. There's no official use I could find for port 9000 TCP, um, but there are a lot of various services that use it, uh, like Hadoop. There's a BitTorrent tracker service that uses it. SonarCube is like a source code control auditing kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are some well-known services that use it. I don't know if that's the reason or if there's some other reason entirely. I think Matt actually, um, like actually I did put it here, there are some vulnerabilities in a specific DVR brand that um, 
uh, back in 2015 Actually, were vulnerable. it kind of, you know, rejects the member. I think we, when we used to do the internet product alerts, I think we did uh, something related to DVR kind of and port 9000. Oh yeah? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'm forgetting because maybe it was like a couple of years ago last time we did or we looked at that port. So, so one of the things I did is I kind of uh, pieced these two together and I noticed that, okay, there's definitely, this is the old 5358. Yeah and then also the 9,000 TCP, and we see this transition period where maybe for like a small a period of, of time, of yeah. on the 31st, they were scanning both, you know, and then they went back down again. There was some scanning on port 5358 that stopped, and then the 9,000 started with about the same number of scan sources. Uh, and then when I looked at it, it didn't really look like they were tightly coupled together based on the scan sources. Let's go look at the data. Let's mm -hmm. see who was scanning here, who was scanning on the other side, see if we have an overlap of IP addresses, right? To see if they're the same uh, exact sources doing it. And there is some overlap. Yeah. It's not as strong as I would have hoped. I was hoping it was gonna be like, I'm gonna get 18,000 IP addresses matching here. Mm. Statistically, I don't know how tightly these two activities are coupled together but it just seems strange to me. It's just kind of odd. So I'm still, the jury's out on that one. I didn't you know, do a deep thorough analysis of it, but it looks like there might be something going on there. We'll try to investigate further. If we have additional details, we'll come back for that one. Anyway, uh, another one to keep an eye on. Hopefully we might get some more information about what's up with that. Um, seems like the internet weather is always about IoT stuff IoT now. Stuff, yeah. oh, I it, see the theme. It used know. to be. Yeah. used to be Windows machines were infected yeah. and we see all that kind of stuff, but now it's all these embedded IoT type devices. The trend seems to be nowadays all related to IoT malware. Routers, home cameras, network test storage, all those types of things just getting compromised because they have default passwords usually left on them. Anyway, thanks for joining me on that. and. Uh, Hopefully we'll get some more info on it. Thank you, John, for the internet weather. You know, it's interesting. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, the thing is, uh, you know, we have to keep up with, uh, you know, probably change the default passwords, you know, have good hygiene. It's interesting at the same time, exciting to be on the show. Uh, and I actually had a good interaction with Todd, Joe, and John, especially with the internet weather. I really liked it. views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.